Welcome to the Bully Pulpit from the University of Southern California Center for the Political Future. Our podcast brings together America's top politicians, journalists, academics, and strategists from across the political spectrum for discussions on hot-button issues where we respect each other and respect the truth. We hope you enjoy these conversations. Good afternoon. Uh, I'm Bob Shrum, the director of the Center for the Political Future here at USC Dornsife. With me is my colleague and friend, our co-director, Mike Murphy. And whether you're here in person or on Zoom or on Facebook, we welcome you to this event and the latest issue of our Bully Pulpit podcast, where we'll be discussing the question, does polling still work? I'll talk with the panel for, with, along with Mike for about 40 minutes uh, and then turn to questions from the audience. The center is committed to respectful dialogue across our political differences, and I ask everyone here to abide by that standard. Our guests today are two of our outstanding fall 2023 fellows, and I'm very proud they've joined us. Arnon Mishkin is the groundbreaking guru in charge of calling elections at Fox News, and we'll talk about that later because he's really changed that whole process. Reince Priebus is the former six-year chairman of the Republican National Committee, who finished as the winningest chairman of either political party. Uh, he was also the first and former White House chief of staff under former President Donald Trump. So let me kick off this session with our question. We'll go first to Reince. National polling in the recent past has been notably off from actual outcomes. In 2016, most polls said Hillary Clinton would win. In 2020, polls forecast a much bigger Biden margin in the popular vote. And in the 2022 midterms, polls or at least most pundits predicted a red wave. How do you assess that? And if there were big polling misses, why? Well, first of all, thank you, Bob. And thank you to Mike and the crew here at USC for having me. Uh, I'm, I'm a proud father of a Trojan. I've also got two nieces that go here as well. Uh, so I'm excited to be here. So first of all, let me just kind of ratchet things back a little bit. As a party chairman, you know, our job is to be involved in a lot of boring stuff, putter targeting, knowing everything about everyone that we need to deal with, uh, what beer you drink, what car you drive, how much money you make, how many kids you have, everything you can imagine. And so what we use the polling for, from a party perspective, is just in, it, instructive to tell us what is the trend and, and where is it going in this particular race. You look at 2016. So in 2016, I thought the polling was instructive. It was instructive enough to tell us at the party level that although people were telling us don't keep pouring money into the Trump campaign because he's going to get beat by Hillary Clinton. But if you look back at the polling in 2016, in October, Clinton had a seven point, October 18th, she had a seven point lead on average. The next week, Hillary Clinton had a five point lead on average. The week before the election, she had a four point lead on average. But let me tell you what we were doing at the party. We were doing two things. One, we were doing 5,000 person surveys in all the battleground states every night. 
That means real live people, cell phones or landlines, and he'll get into why this is really important in order to be accurate. Cell phones or landlines, diverse, all the micro-targeting data that you need to make sure that when you're taking the sample of 5,000 people, you're getting the real makeup of what, say, a, a state of Florida might look like, okay? Secondly, when you lead into, so, so the polling's instructive, then you're coming into three weeks, two weeks, one week before election day. Early vote and absentee ballot voting in most battleground states tells you everything you could possibly imagine about what's going on. So imagine that you have a voter file in Florida and you've got, now it's like 7 million people in the early vote absentee ballot voter file. The secretary of state tells me every day what ballots came in the door. So I take all that data, remember every 10,000 points of consumer data on every single person. I know everything about who's voting and who's not every single day leading into the election. So now I know based on the data and based on party affiliation with one week to go, okay, we're down 140,000 ballots in Florida. Mitt Romney was down by even worse off in, in 2012. So now I know coming into the weekend before 2016, the data, the, the, the polling trends are okay. I know that my 5,000 person surveys are going well. And now I know that Donald Trump, in, sp in, in spite of the fact that everyone's telling me he's going to lose, is about 140,000 ballots better than where Mitt Romney was in 2012. So then we're thinking to ourselves, okay, we got it. We, we have a chance. So in, from my viewpoint, I never look at polling to tell me whether or not in, in a race coming onto the wire, whether or not I need to pull the plug. I use polling to be instructive, but I never rely on it as a matter of life or death. And so I'll let Arnon go on, but I, I, I could go on and on and on about this first question. Yeah. And Arnon, I, I want you to comment, but I'd like to throw something else in. Okay. So uh, where should I in go? our 2020 USC polling, yes. we ask a second question that was different from the conventional racehorse choice. We ask who, with what we call the social circle question, who are your friends and neighbors voting? And the result was right on the money in terms of the popular vote. Why, in your view, did a question like that yield a more accurate result than the conventional formula, which just asks, who are you voting for? Let's go to the follow-up question first. Thank you very much. And thank you very much, Bob and Mike, for having me. And it's always an honor to... Uh, be on a panel with Ryan Scribus, who clearly knows a thing or two about politics, and then some. In terms of why the social circle question works, particularly with a candidate like Donald Trump, I think there was a lot of social hesitation amongst some voters to acknowledge that they were supporting Donald Trump. He clearly, there was clearly a segment of voters that are strongly for Trump, that wear the t-shirts, that show up at the rallies, but there were a whole bunch of voters, and this was particularly true in 2016, thanks to, I think, the shrewdness of the RNC and the shrewdness of Mitch McConnell and a number of other people who held their nose and decided, I don't like Donald Trump, I'd, uh, but she's going to win for sure, thanks to what the media is telling us. And uh, anything that, to close the gap will be good. And in any event, maybe we'll get a, a court seat or something. So I think that there were a lot of people who were sort of holding their nose and voting for Trump, even though they had many reservations about some of his behavior and some of his personality and the like. 
And the circle question, I think, helps get at that. But yeah, I'm not going to acknowledge that I'm voting for Trump, but all my friends are voting for Trump or everyone in my social circle. And I think that's what you, what you saw in that polling. I think you also see that a lot. Here we are in Los Angeles, um, the original home of um, Mayor Tom Bradley. And it's something that we saw in the 1988 campaign when he ran for governor of California, that that was a case where a lot of people didn't want to acknowledge that they were going to vote Siddiq Majin, who was his opponent. Um, and they said they were undecided. But in the social circle question, you found out, heck, you know, a lot of these people are going to vote for Duke Bajan. So I think that's why your social circle question worked uh, effectively in 2020. In terms of the other polls, you said in 2016, as you point out, most polls said that Hillary Clinton would win the election. Well, she did. OK, and I'm not saying the election was stolen, please. But what I am saying is that she won the popular vote. And actually, the polls were fairly accurate in terms of predicting the popular vote, which is, after all, what a national poll is trying to do. It's trying to assess the popular vote. It wasn't that the polls were wrong in 2016. It was the polling analysts, of which I am one, who were off because they said if she's going to win the popular vote, of course she's going to win the Electoral College. That's not the case. And I think that's what Reince points out that with all the data that the, the RNC had, they were able, and all the local polling they were doing in, in various battleground states, they were able to show that actually this guy Trump has a serious chance. I think the other thing that went on in a lot of polling is, again, I blame the polling analysts more than the polling, is a sense of cognitive dissonance. I think a lot of polls in 2022 were far more accurate than the people who were interpreting the polls and were assuring people that it was going to be a red wave. Um, and and you know, I read many times where a media story about a poll would describe a race and describe Republicans on track to win the House comfortably. And then they cited some that they did some districts and they found out in those districts, lo and behold, the Democrats are winning and they weren't supposed to. They're supposed to be a lot closer. In our poll, in um, our national Fox News voter analysis, which the AP calls AP VoteCast, we looked on the afternoon of Election Day and we looked at the breakout in battleground districts. And even though the Republicans were winning the top line, in the battleground districts, we had the Democrats winning. And we thought, something's wrong with this poll. I mean, I, I admit, we were little, we weren't not totally confident given everything else. But I think that's what's going on. And I think the other thing that is going on in polling is that polling is harder to do now than it used to be. And one of the reasons is because it's a different country than it used to be. I mean, when Ronald Reagan was running for president, we were in a 60-40 country. We are now in a 50-50 country. And estimating a 60-40 electorate is a lot easier than estimating a 50-50 electorate because, let's face it, polling is an inexact science. And particularly in a 50-50 race, it is particularly susceptible to, I think, the effectiveness that both parties, but led by the Republican Party, I think the Republicans have done much better, thanks to you. Um, than the Democratic Party has done in this in terms of micro-targeting and understanding what it means when someone's beer choice is Budweiser versus someone's beer choice is Amstel Light in terms of how they're likely to vote and all the other stuff that you guys are able to do very effectively. And that targeting can drive turnout much more effectively than it used to be able to do. And that turnout will affect the result of the election very dramatically. Mike, you want to? Yeah, I, did, I just want to chime in for a minute. As a political consultant, I bought tens of millions of dollars of polling, and I learned a few things, the biggest of which is the famous theory from the world-renowned political scientist Clint Eastwood, who said, know your limitations. Hmm. So there are three ways, there are three things in polling you got to watch. 
One, let me back up for one minute and be a boring political science professor. Apologies to the political science department here who I've now insulted and to you. How does polling work? Let's just start there. How does this magic work? I have people come up to me and say, nobody ever polled me. How do they know what everybody's going to do? Well, there's statistical science behind it. The basic idea is if you take a population you want to poll, say people registered to vote, and you, even though let's say it's 100 million people, and you randomly survey enough of them randomly to get a representative, if much smaller samples, say 1,200 people, their opinions will mathematically mirror the larger group. Sounds pretty easy, and it works. It's, it's science. Here's the problem, getting that sample, because we're busy now. You try to get a big part of the electorate, say, are single moms with a college degree and two or more kids. Try to get them on a cell phone or on a landline or even texting to the internet for 20 minutes to fill out a poll. Very hard to do. So getting a true representative sample hard. Doable, but hard and expensive. Error can slip in there. Second problem, you want to poll who you think is going to vote. And in politics, our best guide is who voted before or who just registered to vote. But sometimes something happens in an election and people come in that change the electorate a little and you weren't polling them because you can't tell the future. You're trying to figure out, we got to call the people who always vote because they're the most accurate predictor. So you can have a little sample error there. So that's one pile of error you got to figure out a work around. And as you said, it's so much harder to do now in our modern society for the reasons he mentioned, as well as just 900 different ways people communicate, not a lot of time. Second one is questionnaire design. If I ask a poll, if you knew Bob Schrump killed a guy in a bar in Toledo in 1979, would you be more or less likely to vote for him? Less likely. Did you mean to use uh, Donald Trump's name? I shot someone on Fifth Avenue. <laughs> right, right. Well, you're the, the Johnny Cash song is really about Bob. But then question number two, who's better on crime? Hardworking Senator Murphy or Bob Schrump? So there's question design error. Good pollsters don't do that. Not all pollsters are good. Then third, the biggest problem. When you're making money allocation and strategy decisions in a campaign, you're looking at direction and polls because you know what polls, if they're well-conducted and well-designed, give you a very good idea of what happened last week. They do not predict the future. But most of we political junkies who have a candidate we want to win and check the paper every day, what do we want to know? We're going to win or lose. We're trying to predict the future. Most people consume polling to try to have a magic view of, well, Biden's going to be Trump. He's five points ahead. I can sleep tonight or vice versa. And polls are very, very bad at predicting the future until the future is upon us. So that's why I don't really follow national polls now much about elections that haven't happened yet. I learn a lot about what people think about the candidates. I think, boy, those Biden guys right now, they got to fix what people think about him and the economy. They're in real trouble. But I don't know the future. I know the problem. If the election were held tomorrow, I can tell you who's going to win. But the future is yet to be made. So most people who consume polling consume it as a psychological crutch to try to feel good or feel bad about something they care about into the future. And that's not what polls are supposed to do. All right. So how do you make sure you have a, an accurate poll? Uh, some polls are good. Some polls are bad. You take a lot of them and you take and usually hire more than one pollster. Uh, and then you compare everything. And you do a lot of the things that Mike just talked about. One of the, th I was thinking about when Arnon was speaking, when he said that, which is 
Very true and obvious, but it's also important to recognize the obvious, which is in 2016, if a poll said that Hillary would win by three or four points nationally, it was pretty accurate. But the reality is, is that we don't have a national election. Right. We have an election in about six states in this country. And in those six states, 90,000 people or less decide that election. So if you look at Wisconsin, 20,000 or less people are going to decide the outcome of, of Wisconsin. So each side's going to spend billions of dollars. And now imagine the parties. They're spending billions of dollars in one state to move plus or minus 20,000 people. So you're probably targeting about 100 to 120,000 people total. Imagine if you took three to $4 billion, I guess Senate race, just in 2022. If you added what, what, what Ron Johnson spent and what the Democrats spent, it, it was hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars, all fighting over 20 to 40,000 people. Now imagine if you took $2 billion and you started fighting over 20, to 40,000 people, what's going to happen? So with so due respect to the pollsters, when you get down to that level of granularity, the poll is great, but it isn't going to tell you what 20,000 people are going to do after you dump $2 billion on their head. And, and that's the reality of what, the, what Mike's life was like running campaigns his entire life. Yeah, it ruined me. But no, Rimes is right. Just one point on the presidential polling, because that's what everybody obsesses with. Like right now, Joe Biden's showing pretty weak polling for an incumbent, but you can be fooled. Biden is only winning California by nine points. He should win it by 20. But in a presidential race, you get the electoral votes whether you win by one point or 30. So, you know, when, when you see this underperformance, as Rimes said, it's really about 15 television markets in the country that really determine in nine out of 10 cases, the outcome. So you got to be careful of national horse race polling because that would, that tells you if the election were held tomorrow and there was no electoral college, by the way, you know who invented the electoral college? Alexander Hamilton. The one song they left out of the musical was, this was my idea. Um, but we both, we've had five of these occasions in the last hundred years where the popular vote in the electoral, and they've all been in the last uh, 25 years. So it's a recent phenomenon because of the polarization in the country. So national polls have gotten even worse at predicting presidential outcomes because they only measure the popular vote. Now, if the media, which are the polls you read, which is another problem, because I've never met a publisher who says, double the polling budget. No, it's always give me the cheapest poll I can because with polling, it's the one time where the media creates a story and then covers it by buying a cheap poll. But if they polled every state really well, or they pulled those six or eight states really well, it would be more predictable. Let, let me tell you in the real world how a party chairman uses polling. You know, we know Florida is a tough state. There are lots of Puerto Rican voters that moved into Florida after a hurricane several years ago. So I need to figure out how I'm going to appeal to Puerto Rican voters because they're in Orlando, they're all around the I-4 corridor, and I want to make sure that we're not getting killed with Puerto Rican voters. Citizenship isn't an issue. Obviously, they come to, they're already citizens of the United States, obviously. So what do I need to do? I need to go survey these voters. And I use a pollster to figure it out. And I hired the pollster to go survey these voters. And they come back and they do a presentation in a room like this. And I walk in and they start in. Arnon or someone like, like Arnon comes in. And what did we find out 
is that, okay, here are the five most important things to Puerto Rican voters in Florida. And it's things that you would expect it to be. Education, the economy, crime, right? It's, it's pretty much across. It. But then we find, wait a minute, statehood, meaning Puerto Rico becoming a state, ranks really high with Puerto Rican voters. And it turns out when you dig into that issue, if you're a candidate, at least says to the Puerto Rican voter in Orlando, I believe that the people of Puerto Rico ought to take a vote and determine their own destiny in Puerto Rico. Then what are the chances that that voter would be more likely to vote for your candidate? And we find out that it's pretty high. So then all of a sudden, we're with our candidate in Orlando doing a roundtable discussion with Puerto Rican leaders in Orlando, and we're talking to them about this issue. That, in reality, is probably 90% of the time right. where the party and, even, and the campaigns use polling in order to determine how they can slice and dice their way to victory. I, I, think, I think that's a really important anecdote or, or, or point about because politics has changed dramatically in terms of or how campaigns are managed. And, and again, I think this is where the Republicans led the way um, and Democrats have sort of learned to follow suit. But in that a poll is designed, a media poll is designed to reflect the top line view of the electorate um, with some different groups. A campaign is about cutting up that um, electorate in a way that you can motivate different segments of the electorate vastly more effectively. I think it is one of the interesting things that since Watergate, the Republicans have only won the presidency and always won the presidency when they have nominated a candidate who is, has the greatest enthusiasm for their base and who many people in the middle say, oh, please nominate Ronald Reagan. He's the most right-wing candidate. There's no way he appeals right. to the middle. Um, that was certainly, I think, the attitude of many people when Donald Trump got the nomination. And frankly, it was also the case with um, both Bushes that they were the sort of more base-oriented candidate than the, um, than the alternative in those McCain and, and Dole. The Democrats have sometimes nominated, they've once nominated a candidate who really was the motivation, motivated their base, which was Obama, obviously. But other times it was sort of, hold your nose, Joe Biden is just fine. And um, Bill Clinton was sort of considered a little bit more conservative than the average Democrat. And I think that that is something that makes it harder to poll because campaigns are run in a different manner than historically they, they're run and different than the way we're taught in political science class they should be run. So I, I want to get to post-election polling or election day polling. And before we talk about today's polls, which I think are very interesting. So you're the head of the Fox News election decision team, and you developed an alternative methodology for calling results in different states, most famously Arizona in 2020, which you awarded to Biden very early on, much to the consternation of the Trump forces. Why did you innovate this model? Explain how it works. And can you give us a glimpse into the controversy surrounding the Arizona call? First off, in terms of early, um, the Arizona call was made after all polls were closed in the continental United States. I think it was, there was a half hour left to the voting in, in Alaska. Um, when the call was made, but the polls had closed in, in Arizona and, um, 75% of the vote in Arizona was in. But by um, early, I mean, yeah, you were days ahead of us. That, that, that is correct. 
Um, we had developed after 2016, when there were a lot of objections to the accuracy of the exit poll, um, some of which we discussed today, the decision was made by, to pull out of the exit poll and, and Fox and the AP worked together, to develop what we call the Fox News voter analysis, which is a, and what AP calls AP votecast, which was a, a survey of 100,000, over 100,000 voters and non-voters. Um, and the reason we developed this methodology in large part was because America was not voting on election day. And so they weren't really exiting the polls. They were, you know, a large part of America was voting, um, 40% in 2016 had voted early or by mail or absentee. And in 2020, it was 60% of the vote that was early and absentee. Um, and so we developed this standard methodology to cover all those kinds of voters. The, what was, we did in Arizona, which we combined the actual vote that was coming in with the um, results of our, our survey. And what we found um, with 75% of the vote in, by the way, that was 85% of the mail-in and early vote, we found that our poll was basically accurate for the mail-in vote. Um, it was off, it was 1.2 Biden. And um, we adjusted that poll and we adjusted that for the election day vote. And we found that Joe Biden was gonna win this election. But by win this election, I mean win this election within that he would, that there was no way Donald Trump was going to overtake Joe Biden, even though he was going to gain, but he was, there was no way he was going to gain in terms of our margin of error, which is to get technical on you, basically four standard deviations from our estimate. Um, so it is wrong to say we projected that Joe Biden was going to win a landslide. What we projected was there was no way Donald Trump could take the lead given all the data we had on what the election day vote was going to look like. And lo and behold, he didn't. He got really close. He, you know, came as close as possibly could come, but that's why we haven't made the call. Um, our brains always, the, our estimates always said that Biden was going to win. The stomachs weren't always in agreement, <laughs> but unfortunately there were a lot of chocolate chip cookies at, at Fox that night. Uh, <laughs> and, and I just want to salute you for that because the exit polling world was a bit ossified, but the way the electorate voted changed with all this mail-in and early voting. So the old model was obsolete and you guys pioneered a far better methodology, but it made you an outlier for a bit there, which. Yeah. And the AP. The, and remember, yeah, and the, the AP, AP you're looking partner. at the same yeah. data also right. made the same call. Yeah. You didn't tell us about the controversy. Did you, did you get some heat? Yes. <laughs> I mean, it's all in succession. If you want. <laughs> Let the record no show I didn't in. laugh. <laughs> Talk a little bit about the polling now. Especially the polling in the Republican primary and the Arnon, maybe you could kind of tell us what came out today and what you think it means. And then let's hear from rights. Well, three polls came out today of states. And I agree with everyone on this panel that um, national polling, particularly in a primary, is more or less useless. Um, what really matters is what the state result's going to be. Right. And then unlike in a general election, I mean, in, let's face it. In November of 2024, I would say 90% of you know how you're going to vote. You may not know the name of the candidates you'll be voting for, but you, everyone knows there are strong bases. I mean, of primary, that's the case. And so there is a, a great fluidity to the race. And it's affected by, you know, what we see in the debates a lot more than the, it's affected a general election. But there were three polls. Fox came out with polls in Iowa and South Carolina. CNN came out with a poll in New Hampshire. And I would say that the headlines from the poll are Donald Trump continues to be strong in all three states. 
He is not as strong in any of those states as he is nationally. I think nationally, Fox had 60% of the Republican primary vote. But in each of these states, he's more like in the 40s or even below, I think, in, in CNN, New Hampshire poll. Ron DeSantis continues to underperform expectations, um, continues to be- That in- was very nice of you. <laughs> I mean, no, has no one's ever fallen this far this fast that I can remember. In, in a primary. I mean, it's, it's been unbelievable. Yeah, no, it is. It is. He is not, you know, and by the way, I think that that's an important thing to recognize about my feeling about what this Republican electorate is like, because I think that there is a, the Republican electorate is divided between people who are either solidly for Donald Trump or more or less for Donald Trump. And then there's a bunch that is ready to go with an alternative. And I think what DeSantis was in 2022 um, was this successful governor who was getting a lot of money and he's the alternative and he's not named Trump. And I think that a lot of people just said, that's great. Right. But the other thing we saw in addition to DeSantis in decline was uh, Nikki Haley appears, I wouldn't say to have caught fire, but she's caught a spark. And we've seen it. She doubled her support in uh, the Iowa Fox poll. Um, she increased her support in the CNN New Hampshire poll. And he's, she is a clear number two in the South Carolina poll. And so, um, I, so I'm impressed by her performance. Zevek Ramaswamy is clearly still attracting some attention. I don't know how long he can last, but you know, my sense about that, my takeaway from the polling is someone's going to finish second in Iowa. It's likely Trump will finish first. Someone's going to finish second. And there's going to be a lot of attention on that individual, much like in 1984, when you had a similar race of Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs with Walter Mondale as Snow White, and nobody knew who number two was. And lo and behold, Gary Hart came within 40 points of, of beating Mondale in, New ha- in Iowa, and then he caught fire in New Hampshire, and it was a long, a long road to the nomination. So, so here's the insight for the, for the group. Voters don't pick our nominees. The delegates pick our nominees. The delegates to the Republican Party or the Democrat Party pick the nominee. You all remember that from our study group last night. And this is why it's important. If you know the delegate rules, meaning if you want to be the nominee of the Republican or Democrat party, you need to get a majority of the delegates of that party to support you. Well, how does that work? Well, a hundred years ago, you would show up in a city in United States, say Cleveland, and you're running, you're all running for president. You all show up in Cleveland and you talk to the thousands of members that are delegates of the party and they have, you know, weeks of discussion. And after a few weeks, one of you is going to be the nominee. Well, about 80 years ago, the party said, you know what? We can get a lot more people involved here if we have a little state election. And we're going to have a state election. We're going to get everyone else involved in the party, strengthen the Republican and Democrat party even more. And we're going to say to the delegate from Wisconsin or wherever, you're going to vote according to the outcome of the popular vote in that state. So the delegates come to Cleveland. They have their own preferences. Maybe they don't like Ron DeSantis. Maybe they don't like Donald Trump, but they're bound to the outcome of that vote. So what's really important, the reason I thought of this as Arnon was speaking, is that in most states, the delegates are awarded on a winner-take-all basis, which means 
in, if, in the Republican Party. In the Republican Party, which means if you get 35% of the vote and there's seven people running in Wisconsin, you might get all 50 delegates. Some states do it proportional. You would get 35. And the 15, where would they go? Well, Nikki might get a couple. Ron DeSantis might get a couple. Vivek might get a couple. If you were drawing the game plan for the Trump campaign, you'd want nothing more than instead of having one strong opponent, Ron DeSantis, well, now you got three. Well, if you go run the math on how those delegates, I won't bore you with every state, you go run the math. And I can assure you that three strong candidates at eight and nine percent, you, you, Donald Trump couldn't ask for something better than this situation for him. But or do you believe that it's going to remain three or four strong candidates? Oh. Or will the donors say, wait a second, the, there are a set of donors right. um, would prefer the party not nominate Donald Trump. And are they going to basically do what the Democrats did where after um, South Carolina, everyone, all the Democratic poobahs were basically saying, we have to unite. Because otherwise, Bernie Sanders gets the nomination and he's not good. That did what happened. And, and, and Joe Biden, Joe was just fine. Um, I mean, that's basically what the race turned out to be. And I'm just wondering if you're going to see a similar dynamic play out, depending on how things transpire. Otherwise, you're absolutely right. Donald Trump is the nominee. No, I don't think so. I, I don't think that's going to happen. I think the Democrats have, they have a similar thing. I mean, you know, Bernie Sanders has a le had a legit ground game, you know, small dollar army. I just think that the sort of rank and file grassroots of the party have enormous power in leadership, in party elections. It runs deep. It's not just a phenomenon. It's been going on for a long time. And I don't see that dynamic changing. Mike, before we turn to the audience, yeah, let's turn to you. Well, I, uh, I mean, I agree with what I'm hearing. Again, delegates driven by primaries. So it's like a three carom shot thing. So a national poll now tells you nothing. The other thing is there are only really two markets where there's competition, Iowa and New Hampshire. That's where other people are campaigning and spending millions of dollars. So if I invent Murphy dog food in my garage and I try to poll you on it, your dogs haven't tasted it. You don't know. You only know Elpo. But in the one neighborhood where you can get Murphy dog food, Murphy dog food starting to get a line outside and Elpo's shrinking a little, that tells you something. I think there's only one way to beat Trump for the nomination, and it's really simple, but really hard to do. You got to beat him in Iowa. You got to beat him in New Hampshire if the same person. Then there'd be a rock star and they're falling behind him. If only the major donors voted, Trump would lose three to one. Okay. I just covered a thousand votes, not nearly enough to nominate somebody. But I think this time may be a little different that if Superman can't fly and then a week later he can't have a comeback, I think then there's going to be a new lion with a bloody mouth. But are any of them running that campaign to know how to thread that needle? Because the Iowa electorate and the New Hampshire electorate are very different. The old secret slogan, I've done a lot of presidential caucuses and campaigns, and the old little secret slogan in New Hampshire is screw Iowa. Because the, the fundamentalists vote there, well, uh, Mike Huckabee or Rick Santorum, and they're, they don't even go to New Hampshire. They give up almost immediately. So you got to thread the needle there, and it's really hard to do. But in the caucus, which, by the way, Trump lost to Ted Cruz, first time he ran, just when he had competition, th this data is showing a little opportunity. Last thing, and 
Aaron made this point, and it's so important. In a general election, 90% is locked in. Repub Democrat, you know, on my team, 10% wiggles around. So you get a two or three point move on a poll. Wow, there's something going on. In a primary, there are differences, but everybody is the same animal, essentially, which means you can have a herd motion late. You can have a 20-point swing in a primary in the last 30 days. I've seen it a zillion times, statewide level. It can move a lot bigger and faster, and it's always late. So I don't think it's time to go to sleep watching the Iowa caucus New Hampshire primary yet. I don't believe the war of attrition. Trump will either get broken early or he'll smother them all and run the table. And the only way to break him early is he's got to lose and be Trump the loser twice in a row, in my view. And you can see big swings. I mean, Iowa in 2000, or in the Democratic primary, everybody assumed our Dean was going to win, came in third, and Kerry, who had been polling in single digits, won by six points. And then went on and won New Hampshire and then won almost every single contest. We hear about violence all the time in the news, yet we rarely hear stories about peace. There are so many people who are working hard to promote solutions to violence, toxic polarization, and authoritarianism, often at great personal risk. We never hear about these stories, but at what cost? On Making Peace Visible, we speak with journalists, storytellers, and peace builders who are on the front lines of both peace and conflict. You can find Making Peace Visible wherever you listen to podcasts. Okay, I want to turn this over to the audience. And because we don't have mics, I think I'll repeat the question when you ask any, anybody have a question? I understand that the uh, dark side poll in 2016 did not use uh, probability sampling, which is we traditionally use, but uh, the panel, the stable panel. And, um, and, and paid special attention to swings uh, going on in the special panel. Now, uh, is that approach becoming popular? Is it going to become the approach of choice? And if so, does it solve any problems or does it create more? It, 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 look, it can be controversial. It's very expensive. The panel is 10,000 people. Assembling the panel, keeping them engaged, all of that costs a lot of money. Uh, in 2016, actually, the Dornsife poll was Donald Trump's favorite poll because it kept saying he had a real chance to win. In 2020, the, when we asked the conventional question, which is, who are you going to vote for? It was like everybody else. It was only the social circle question, who are your friends and neighbors going to vote for, that mattered. I think there's a lot of merit in it, but it goes back to a point that Mike made, which is a lot. there's a lot of polling out there that's done on the cheap that some newspaper or television station says, I want a poll, I'll give you 5,000 bucks. Tell me what's going on in California. That poll is useless. It should just be thrown but away. They get a lot of clicks for the poll. That they yeah, really right. it's a good <laughs> business move. They get the same amount of revenue for a crazy poll as a real one. And so for them, so you get great. more revenue from a crazy poll. So the cost are lower. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, no. Remember, it's the news business on both sides. The other thing that goes on is there were in 2022, a number of, there were a number of pollsters who in 2020 had basically adjusted, um, were sort of unskewing the polls to sort of say <laughs> the Republicans are always underperforming 
Um, and so we'll just fix it a bit. Um, I won't mention a few names, um, but the, in 2022, those, and those people turned out to, they were sort of heroes for a day because Biden did not do as well as a lot of pollsters estimated in the popular vote. Um, although we won it quite handily. Um, and in 2022, they did the same thing. Meanwhile, the pulse, the real pollsters, um, were, um, sort of saying, actually, it's a closer race than you realize, or it's a more, it's more democratic than we realize. Um, it's not quite as red a wave. And I think the problem was that with the polling averagers is that all of them were included in these polls and you got a really skewed view from looking at those averages. Yeah. There, there was a bit of a problem in the Republican party. Because we got all hung up in some of our internal polling firms on likely voters. Because yeah, gonna... that sounds really smart. I figured out the likely voters. And in an off-year election, where grumpy old white people vote, generally good for Republicans, likely voter thing is pretty predictive. You get in a presidential race with a third to 38% bigger electorate, you're likely polar. You're not getting any of that. And then election day, you get a big surprise. So in, in our internal polling firms, in my view, we kind of fell for that scam because it became a confirmation bubble. We were doing better than we should have been. And this is in statewide races and places. And that like was that. the Gallup had that problem in yeah. 2012, where they thought that, you know, they were showing Romney in the lead the whole way through. And it turned out that predicting a likely voter is not that easy. That just because you were a likely voter doesn't mean you're going to be a likely voter at the next election, as Mike said. So that's why at the end of the day, when you're running a presidential campaign or a national party, you have to go in and survey thousands of people a day, every day, and you got to get on their door and you have to know whether or not I can count on Jennifer to turn in that absentee ballot. I think she's an 80% supporter of ours, but unless I get someone to not, not so, so now the issue is I need to bank every one of my votes, early voter absentee ballot voting, because I can't rely anymore in predicting whether a likely voter is a, is an actual vote, unless I put that vote in the ballot with someone at your door getting you to turn in that absentee ballot vote. Yeah, yeah, and you guys were smart in 2016. The Clinton campaign in 2016 didn't conduct any polling in the battleground states in the last two weeks. She didn't they relied on Wisconsin for the last two months. Right. Well, she, she, one thing got canceled and then they didn't go. I mean, I know it was unbelievable that they didn't go. They didn't find time. But my point here is if you can't rely on data analytics, which is not only a likely voter model, but is all thrown into the past and not get real-time data. And if they'd had real-time data, they would have gone to Wisconsin. They would have, they would have done a do, lot more in Michigan than they were doing. when Donald Trump went to Minnesota the weekend before the election and people were making fun of him on yeah. TV, thinking these people are the biggest idiots in the world. They're going to Minnesota? Boy, they don't know what's going on. Turned out that they almost won Minnesota. So they knew what they were doing. Another question. Thank you guys so much for your time. My question's a bit broad, but if you can know about what are the top three strategies um, to do when, or to take when um, running a successful campaign. What are the top three strategies to winning a campaign, running a successful campaign? Well, you got to raise money. <laughs> you got to have a message that resonates with people. 
And you got to have an infrastructure that does all the kinds of stuff we're talking about here, which is the polling, uh, the, the, the reaching people on the doorstep, making sure that that the votes get in. I don't know what others. Well, I, I, the mechanics is the plumbing. If you don't have the water, you know, the message, you're, you're screwed normally. So you have to have a compelling message that's relevant to people's lives that they believe is true and unique to your candidate. To frame the question on election day, be it absentee or in the ballot, of what is the decision that I'm making this about? You do that. Two, kill the other guy. Make the decision easy. Always relevant on things that are relevant to voters. I would just add one thing. I think that's exactly right. But I think America is a more complicated country than it was 20 years ago and than it was 40 years ago. And that's and not just in terms of ethnic diversity or racial diversity, but in terms of issue diversity. And I think that that the most successful candidates say you got to have a message. We assume it's a message that is delivered across the entire electorate. But I think the most successful ca candidates are the ones who understand that, no, the message has to be delivered to different segments. And that's not about saying, you know, I'm liberal to one community and I'm a conservative in another community. It's understanding what issues drive different communities and being able to speak to them. The example that Reince used earlier, which I think is interesting, is in Florida, they had a large Puerto Rican community that had moved there after the hurricane. And what was the issue that they were concerned about, which was statehood and figuring out a way to express that without sort of saying something that's going to tick off the other parts of your voter base. But yeah, I, the, I the only thing I would add to that, and I, I want to speak. when I talk about message, and I think Mike means this too, you got to have an overall message and then you got to be able to segment it within that overall message uh, so that you're, you're reaching different groups of people. But you, I think it's really critical that you say something. I mean, look, Biden is a good example of this. And I, you know, in 2020, democracy is on the line. We're fighting for the soul of the nation. And then it got segmented in different ways in different places. Yeah, I'll give you one example of a great strategic message. I'm going to go back in the time machine. There was a candidate running who didn't have the strongest resume, but came up with a great positioning message for a center race in Wisconsin. Patty Murray, not great on the stump. Not a lot of base, but people see the Senate as an advocacy job. It's like sending your lawyer to fight for the state or for your group. And her campaign was, it's time in the U.S. Senate for a mom against the millionaires. Boom. Um, yeah. Let me just add, the Senate. Let me add a couple quick things. Um, it depends on what, you know, what you're running for. First thing, because I talked to a lot of candidates, Make sure you're running in a district where you can win. <laughs> I mean, I have a lot of the, the best candidates in the world that are amazing people have had incredible resumes. They could be White House fellows, which is really hard to be. But, oh, I want to run against this person who's, who has never been under 70% ever. And the Republican hasn't won there in 100 years. I say, don't run there. You're, you're not going to win unless losing's okay. And you're doing it for other reasons, podcast, become famous, take on a, per, you know, all, there's a lot of reasons why people run instead of just winning. So run where you think you can win. Number one, Les Aspen, who is the, one of the longtime congressmen from southeastern Wisconsin. He's a famous former secretary of defense. He didn't live in, he's not from Wisconsin. I, 
said, where do you, where could I go? And he went right in to Southeastern Wisconsin. He ran there and he won and he was there forever. That's number one. Number two, talk in 80% acceptable ways. There's a lot of ways to talk about the border, right? Can you hear Republicans and some people, you know, we're a diverse crowd. There's some things people have said about the border that I'm sure some of you are offended by, but there's a way to talk about it. You say, well, I want to secure the border to protect the American worker. That's different. You say, I want to end foreign wars and bring our troops home. So people ask me, what is America first? Well, those are two. I want to confront China and even, you know, the playing field. When you talk like that, it's hard to be against people when they know how to use their mouth in a way that builds consensus. So obviously there are a lot of great ideas up here. I'm not going to repeat them, but, and then the last thing is just, you have to be obsessed with details because when I talked about data, when I, when we, when we talk about like the second amendment, we don't just send a flyer. If we think someone cares about the second amendment say, well, Joe Biden's going to, he's going to take your gun away. That's not good enough. You have to know why someone cares about their gun. It could be a lot of reasons. Maybe this gal's a single mom and has three kids and she's worried and she's, she doesn't care less about the Second Amendment. Has no, you didn't even know what the Second Amendment might be. So you say Second Amendment. Oh, no, it's a fear message. If this person wins, you're going to be unsafe. This person's going to make your kids unsafe. This person's going to put your lives in jeopardy. And because no one's taking care of the crime in your neighborhood, you're going to be left with nothing. That's a different message. Maybe they care about the Bill of, maybe someone just loves the Bill of Rights. He loves James Madison. He loves, and it's a freedom message. This person's trampling on the constitution. They don't care about America. They don't care about your rights. And the, that's a freedom message. My point to you is like anything in life, the fact that you come to USC means you're a really brilliant student. You couldn't get here unless you were, weren't. And it took a lot of time. Engineers, they're obsessed with details. They get ahead because they're really good at caring about every little decimal point. The same thing with politics. The winners focus on the boring stuff and the details. And that's what I would challenge you to do. Yeah. And I would add an example. You talk about the Second Amendment in 2022. Democrats found a lot of different ways to talk about the Dobbs decision and reproductive rights, and it had a very large impact on the election. Touching on, I guess, you were talking about like 140,000 voters that are going to determine the election, like the undecided ones in the battleground states. What kind of, uh, what are the demographic splits about that? Um, and then are they mo more focused on, I guess, issues or mo more focused, I guess, on candidate center politics or what kind of messages really resonate with these like people that group is 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 almost a perfect microcosm of the entire of the entire country and it moves depending on depending on the issues of the day but in in our world in the republican world we feel like that 140,000 moves when you're talking about crime when you're talking about the border when you're talking about china when you're talking about schools and parents' rights, it, it moves a lot. Look, President Trump represented the biggest middle finger the American people could find in 2016. That's where the electorate was. Joe Biden represented a reversal of that middle finger. 
And now all of a sudden, we've got a mixed bag. And people are worried about some of the same things that they were worried about in 2016. And, and Joe Biden is 20 points worse today than he was in 2016. And when you only have to move 100,000 people or less, and you're 20 points worse than you were in 2016, I mean, we'll see what happens. We'll see who the nominees are, but it's up for grabs. Yeah. Just to go go on that. I think, I think that the other thing you need to think about is I'm not certain so much that a campaign is about moving an undecided voter from voting Republican to voting Democratic or, or vice versa, so much as it's about motivating. Mm-hmm. And so one of the interesting things, um, Ryan's talked about the, the Johnson victory in Wisconsin in 2022. Most interesting thing about that election was that, um, at least in my book, was that the Democratic candidate, um, Mandela Barnes, there were about 100,000 fewer votes in, in Milwaukee County, which is a very solidly democratic. It's actually where the Democrats can win in Wisconsin if they're going to win. Um, and there were 100,000 fewer votes in Wisconsin and in, in Milwaukee County that uh, in 2022 than there were four years earlier when the Democrat won for the Senate. And then and that's and that's where Johnson, the Johnson, by limiting that turnout or Mandela Barnes, by not getting that turnout, lost that Senate seat. Okay, we have what? time for one more question. Can I quickly interject? Because it's really important not to think of it as there are, and we can argue about the number. I'm going to go a little bigger. There are 500,000 magic unicorns that decide the election. So what are they like? Well, the truth is they're just regular old voters who happen to live in finely balanced places. So you can find anybody in that group. To the extent they skew, they're a little more suburban. But it is, so there's no one thing they all are. It's just a microcosm, as Ryan said, of everybody but they operate with this like leverage of a hundred times more important than any other voter. So all this stuff is important there. It's not one segment. One more in quick the- question. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. When you talked about limiting turnout in, in Milwaukee in the um, Ron Johnson, Mandela Barnes race, I wondered, as we all know, a lot of states are changing the rules about voting, whether it's where Dropbox are, or whether there can be used, the areas of early turnout. Um, signatures, whether you call it voter suppression or preventing fraud. And I wondered, does this have any effect in how you poll? Do you take account of these rule changes? Do you believe that they're significant? And when states are considering making those changes, do they do polling to see whether those changes will have any practical impact in terms of outcome? One of the joys of my life is that I get, as head of the decision team at Fox, I get to listen to um, various political scientists that we have on the team, um, both Democrats and Republicans, argue with each other about just that issue and what the impact of that is. I think that, but the reality is, and that both both folks on my team are right, that whatever those laws are that are referred to as voter suppression laws, and we all know with, you know, make it harder to vote, harder to register, voter ID, whatever. Yes, they make it harder to vote, but oftentimes they motivate voters, particularly the voters that perceive that they are targeted, the targets of that, those, those laws. And I think that, that you know, um, Stacey Abrams in Georgia, um, who is one of the, the best organizers of the Democrats, the Democrats have seen in a while, knows how to get those voters out to the polls, her voters out to the polls. Um, she didn't do it for herself, but she certainly did it for the Senate candidates. Um, and they, um, and I think that, that, so we don't know what the net is, but the reality is it's a double-edged sword. It makes it harder to vote, but it motivates a lot of voters. I'd be tempted as a Democrat, just as a 
practical politician to take the deal. They screw around and cost me 6,000 votes, but they give me a message I can motivate millions of people with and maybe. And the other thing to remember is that these laws make it harder for what I guess are called lower socioeconomic status voters to vote, less well, less higher educated voters and the like. The reality is, particularly post-Trump, a lot of those lower SES voters, the white um, non-college educated, are Republican voters. So to the extent that they're making it harder for people to vote um, than the Republicans are doing it, they're actually making it harder for themselves too. Yeah, just like Trump attacking mail-in votes drove us crazy. Months and months of early voting now. And we're going to, and that, I think that trend is going to continue. We have to bring this to a close. We have to bring, (laughs) should we call the audience? How many say we wrap up? Yeah, let's take a vote. We're we're on camera here. Okay. I want to thank Reince and Arnon for this and for the fact that they're here this semester on campus. It's a real contribution to USC. I want to thank our audience and a replay of this event will be on Facebook and YouTube. Please join us for our next program on September 28th, Creating New American Stories of Us, where Mike's going to lead a discussion examining the intersection of entertainment and politics. Thank you for joining us on The Bully Pulpit. It helps us a lot when you subscribe and rate the show five stars wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on Twitter at USC POL Future. That's USC POL Future. Follow us on Facebook and YouTube and visit our website for upcoming programs. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group. 